Let's get this class and Torah study party started. Okay, pleasure. All right, folks, ladies and gentlemen, this is Torah Studies, our, de our weekly, deeply, weekly look at the Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion is Re'eh, um, and Re'eh is the fourth portion in the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, which is, which constitutes the final will and testament of Moses to the Jewish people. So it's kind of like the final instruction. Moses says, I'm about to pass away. You're going to be on your own, well, with Joshua and, and each other, but I'm not going to be here anymore. I can't rescue you. How many times did Moses rescue the Jewish people? You know what the answer is? Too many. Well, not too many. Thank God for all those times. But many times Moses stepped up. I can think of like Sin of the Golden Calf and other complaints and spies and Korach and all that stuff. So bottom line is Moses knows that he will not be around for much longer. In fact, the whole Devarim, the whole Deuteronomy is only 37 days. So it's not that much time that they have left together. So Moses makes sure to convey his deepest, um, most heartfelt sentiments to the Jewish people. What we're going to do tonight is focus on a topic that is one of the most challenging topics in Judaism, really in life. And that is the topic of challenge. Right? Challenge is a challenging topic. The reason why challenge is a challenging topic is because challenge, by definition, is challenging. I know I'm saying the word a lot of times, but here's what I mean to say. There is a movie called Ushpizen. Who remembers Ushpizen? Yeah? Okay. Everybody here remembers you guys? Raise of hand. Ushpizen? Yes? No? Okay. Ushpizen is a movie about a guy. Oh, should I give it away? Sure. Let's give it away. No, it's a, it's a movie about a guy. Um, who essentially has a difficult life. You know, he has a hard life, and then something good happens, but then something bad happens, and then something good happens, and something bad happens. And there's a bit of a cycle of between good and bad. That's the way it is. And there's a line in the movie that I love that I've, I know I've shared at uh, classes before. I know that I've shared this multiple times, and you probably heard me say it, but I need to say it again. And that is that um, the way life works is that God gives us a challenge and the challenge is difficult and then when we pass the challenge, what happens? The confetti and the streamers and the balloons, no. Another challenge comes our way. That's the nature of life. Life is such that it's challenged. It's, life is filled with challenge. Our lives are challenged. And when we master one, there's another challenge that hits us that comes our way. And it could be, frankly, it could be very discouraging and it can be um, a bit frustrating as to why so many challenges, um, wh why we're beset with so many challenges. Nonetheless, that's the reality. And tonight we're going to explore a little bit of a Jewish perspective behind challenge, behind pain, behind suffering, behind the, the, the reality of evil in this world. So we're going to really dig into some of the most challenging topics um, in Judaism and Jewish philosophy and theology. Okay, so I want to begin um, the in-depth, in-text exploration by looking at the opening verse of our Torah portion. I'm going to pull this up. Give me a moment, please. Let's pull this up. And let's see. Hey, welcome, welcome. Okay, and let's see. I got a copy right here. And let's see um, what the opening of the Torah portion looks like. Thank you, Ed. Okay. I'm sharing my screen with you. Those that are online, you have that up now, Re'eh, a perfect exchange. For those in person, you can open up your booklets to page number 85, text number one. Let's pull it up here. And um, Paul, if you don't mind, because we can hear you loud and clear in person. So Paul, if you're up to it, please, hold on one second, please read text number one. Don't forget to unmute. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. There we go. That's the beginning of the Torah portion. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. So there's a few things that we need to understand. A few things that are a little bit perplexing about this verse. One that relates directly to the topic that we just discussed. Which is the God is saying, um, well, it's Moses speaking. And Moses is saying kind of like channeling God, sort of. It has like a divine um, 
um, a divine message feel to it, although, again, it's Moses who's speaking this. But the message is, you, behold, I set before you today what a blessing and a curse, which means that in this world of ours, there are really two realities of life. There's the, the blessing of life and the curse of life. There are the things in life that are the blessing and things in life that are the curse. And that brings up our existential question or our fundamental question of this class, which is, why are there these two modalities? Why is there the blessing and why is there the curse? Well, sorry, let me, let me clarify the question. Not why there's a blessing. Why there's a blessing, we don't, we're not challenging. But why is there the concept of curse, the concept of evil, the concept of challenge, the concept of pain, the concept of suffering in God's world? Why is there the opposite? So just to kind of explain the premise of the question. The premise of the question is that God created the world. And our understanding of God, this is not everyone's understanding of God, but our understanding of God is that God is ultimately, not ultimately, God is essentially and absolutely good. Even though one could argue who says God is good, maybe good is a construct, good is a definition that we've come up with or that exists at a certain lower point, but not at the ultimate point. These are all valid arguments, all good arguments, and, but we don't really have time to get into them tonight. But the, one of the major premises of Judaism is that God is not only the creator, is not only all-knowing and all-powerful, but God is also, um, God is also good. So the, the question therefore becomes, if God is good, and God is all-powerful, and God is all-knowing, so then how is there the existence of evil in this world? And the question is highlighted by the opening verse, where Moses says to the people, I place before you today a blessing and a curse. Don't give me the curse. Well, you give me the blessing and the curse. Just God should give just good things. Why the blessing and the curse? What's going on? Okay, that's this. So the question makes sense. Yes, sort of. Yes. Why is there the existence of the negative? Next question. I'm going to pull up this back on the screen because it's important that we all look at the look at the verse. Okay, the opening Hebrew word here, which is the name of the Torah portion, is re'e. Now re'e means literal, The literal translation of re'e is see. If you notice, the English does not say, does not begin with the word C. C as in S-E-E, -E, not S-E-A. Right? It's not like the splitting of the C. It's like C, like eyesight, C. The translation is not C. I don't know why. It's, I, well, I think I know why. I think I know because of the question I'm about to ask. What are we supposed to see? Moses says, see, I place before you today a blessing and a curse. See, what, what, what are we looking at? What's the, uh, what's the visual here? When you say the word see, and I love the subtitle here, how funny, or shall I say how punny, exchange a promised seesaw. I'm pretty sure they went after the sea over there. Anyway, here's the point. Um, the opening word here, translated as behold, is really see. And that evokes the question, what are we seeing? What are we looking at? We're looking at a blessing and a curse. What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the visual? Which is why I believe the translation that we have here says, Behold. Because behold, less of a question. It's like, ta-da, I have placed before you today a blessing and a curse. Behold. Behold what? Who knows? But if you say see, that implies a visual that's in front of us. So what is the visual? I want to ask a few more questions. Next question is, it uses the word nosein. Or in he, in, or in, uh, in, in, Sephardi and, and Israeli pronunciation, notain, which means I have given. So here in, the, in translation it says, behold, I have set before you today a blessing and a curse. It says, it used the word set. But in Hebrew, it's notain. Like my son, my oldest son, his name is Natan. It's, it means give or it means like a gift. Notain is when you give someone something, like a gift. And this question is formulated by the Rebbe in his talk on this verse, in one of his talks on this verse. He says, when you give something, you typically give something good, right? So it says, oh, I want to give you something. What do you think it's going to be? Right? Like a punch? Says, I, you know what? Oh, my gosh. I have something that, I, that I've been meaning to give you. Like, what is it going to be? <laughs> like, like a taser? I mean, giving is, is typically associated with a gift is associated with something good. So if, if the verse says, see, well, what's the see? Okay, let's get past that. I have given to you today. I'm giving. I'm giving before you today. 
a blessing and a curse. Why? What kind, of, what kind of business is giving a curse? You don't give a curse. Which is why I believe the translation again modifies it. I believe that the translation, this is my theory. It's not a conspiracy theory, it's a theory. I believe that the reason why this translation here modifies re'e and notain is because of the questions that I'm asking. Re'e means see, well what are we seeing? Notain means gift. How is a curse a gift? So therefore the translation I believe is modified to say behold, which is a more vague term, and it says I set before you today a blessing and a curse. I guess you could set a curse before one that doesn't like challenge, that doesn't evoke the same question, but when you say I'm giving you a gift of a blessing and a curse, that's a head scratcher. You're giving me a gift of a curse? I mean, the first half is great. You're giving, I'm giving you a gift. I'm giving you today a gift of what? A bracha, of a blessing. But how does a curse make sense here? All right. Um, so let me quickly check in. Does this make sense? Three questions? Marnie. I just have a question. I, I think that part of the fact that the blessing and a curse yes. means that we have choice, freedom of choice. Good. And so therefore, without that... I'm going to repeat this, yeah. Excellent. Marina is saying that, that, that what he gets, the message that he gets from this verse is about free choice. The idea of blessing and curse is maybe less of what's coming at us, but more about the paths that are in front of us. And which way we choose to go. Good. Okay, good. Hold that thought. It's a, it's a, we're going we're gonna to deal with that tonight as well. Good. Any other questions? Questions, comments? Jump in. I'm looking at you guys. Questions, comments? Maybe the curse is also a gift in some way. Maybe the curse is a gift. Good. Yeah. Good. I like that. Sandrine? In French, we say sometimes it's a poison gift. Like someone gave you a gift, but it ends up being a gift. Oh, so Sandrine's saying the other way. Sometimes, so, Mom, you said that sometimes the curse could be the blessing. Sandrine is saying sometimes the blessing can be a curse. They call it in French. What do you call How do you say it? Say it again. Poison gift. No, but how do you say it in French? So I'm going to say it in English because I, I totally didn't get that. So it's called the poison gift. So it's a gift, but it ends up, right, not good. It's the gift that keeps on giving, but not in a good way. It's a way that you can have ownership of it. Have ownership, good, good, good. So to quickly recap our three questions, question number one, um, or maybe two questions. Uh, no, three questions. Why is there the existence of the curse in God's world? Why not just have all blessings? Question number two is, what's the seeing? What are we supposed to see? Re'e, see, what are we seeing? What are we looking at? Question number three is, notain, um, it, which implies a gift. How is a curse a gift? And question number four, I'm about to present. Oh, Adina Malka, go in, jump in. We were talking about um, evil. I remember some course uh, a long time ago, uh, you taught us that... Uh, Evil, like God was like a king at a feast, and he just threw the scraps behind him, like that was the evil. Good. So you're now quoting Kabbalah and Coffee, some KNC Sunday morning action. Good. Um, all right. So, okay, so that's, there is an angle on that, that sometimes, you know, the negative energy flows from kind of a behind the back, afterthought, scraps and dregs way. Um, I don't know why I was doing this, but I did that. Anyway, um, so that's a, that's a thing. We're not necessarily going to touch on that tonight, but it's, it's, it's a related concept. So I'll tell you. So here, here's maybe the overall, the larger picture. Um, so we have, we have some, some visiting yeshiva students from Muncie, New York. Uh, no, no, they they've been here in Atlanta for, I think, about a week or a week and a half located in, headquartered in Sandy Springs. They're just touring. Summer experience in the ATL. Anyway, everyone online is like, what are you talking about? And I'm talking about a bunch of guys right over here that you can't see that came from Muncie, New York, in Yeshiva. All right, back to our story. So the truth is this question is asked all over the place in Judaism, in every area, Jewish philosophy and Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, Hasidut, Hasidic philosophy. It's everywhere. The question is why evil, how evil, how do we understand evil? Which is why, Adina Makam addressing what you said, so we, we, we brought this question up many times and given different angles on it. Tonight we have, a, I think, a pretty powerful take on this that's going to weave together some of the ideas, including what Marnin said, 
mom, what you said, as well as what's interesting. Like a lot of ideas that were stated are going to be woven together. Um, but yes, the dregs and the, the, the scraps is, is, is also a thought. But we're going to go in a bit of a different, a different angle. I want to present, I want to share with you question number four, but first an introduction. Um, first of all, you guys know I like, we like to ask questions. We start off with like a verse or two and then ask a bunch of questions. So we're in that process of the question, the question stage. There is a, it's interesting. Before there were commentaries on Torah, like biblical commentaries, like Rashi, you know Rashi? The, the classic biblical commentary. There's um, Evan Ezra and Arachayim and Ramba, uh, Rambam, Ramban, all wonderful commentaries. Before there were commentaries, there were translations of Torah in Aramaic. You know what Aramaic is, was? Who can give me a definition of Aramaic? Mark, it's good to see you. I choose to believe that you're stationary and the screen behind you is moving like a movie when they shoot it on set. Anyway, <laughs> all right. You look too well lit to actually be. All right, so here we go. Um, Aramaic was an ancient language that the Jews spoke in the times when, the times of the, you know, when the first temple was destroyed by the, by the Babylonians, Jews were exiled to Babylonia. So the community in Bab the Jewish community that now found itself in Babylonia kind of adopted some of the language and modified like Hebrew and the Babylonian language and came up with like this Aramaic. It's is, is it like Yiddish? Yeah, I was just about to say, exactly. I was just about to say it's kind of like what happens with Yiddish. And I mean, we need to bring in uh, Professor Miriam Udell to like give the definitive version of this history of Yiddish. So I'm out of my league. And nonetheless, I've, that's never stopped me before. So anyway, Yiddish is kind of like an amalgam. It's, you know, based on um, David is saying, hold on, to avoid using Lashon Kasher. Or Lashon Kodesh? Lashon Kodesh. Yeah. Okay. So basically, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a modification. It's a, it's a modified language that's made into a, like a Jewish language, but kind of derived from whatever existing languages are, kind of like Yiddish from German, but it's made to, uh, to be a, a, you know, a, a Jewish version of that language. In fact, at least back in the day, not that long ago, if you would say, do you speak Jewish? That meant Yiddish. You speak Jewish, that, that may, not Hebrew, that meant Yiddish, for whatever reason. Okay, so get, getting back to Aramaic, there were two individuals who translated the Torah into Aramaic. This is going back a few thousand years, like the times of the Mishnah. Two Mishnaic sages who translated the Torah into, into Aramaic. This is before you could buy a printed version of the Chumash of the Torah with commentaries on the side or underneath. This is before commentaries, there were translations. Why do I connect conceptually translations and commentaries? I'll tell you why. Because these were not just translations. If, any, if you've ever done a translation before from one language to another, you know that what, what's required of a translation is some sort of angle and commentary. There's no, con there's no such thing as a pure translation word for word. Because if you translate one language word for word into another, it's unreadable. If you literally go word by word in the same order, in the same like exact word by word, and you read it, I mean, that's why when you get these instructions, you buy something on Amazon, you read the instructions, you're like, what does that even mean? Because somebody did a literal trend. Has that ever happened to you? Yes. It's all right. I think now it's getting better because they realize, like, just pay somebody five bucks to get it done right. It's like a small little thing. But anyway, the point is that um, a word for word translation doesn't work. So, what do you need to do? You need to explain it a little bit. In the, you take concepts in one language and explain it in another language. So, a translation is really also a commentary because you can't help but frame the text that you're translating. Does that make sense? You're framing it in some way. So there are two famous uh, Aramaic translations of Torah. One is called Targum Yonatan. It's the, Targum means translation. It's the translation, the Aramaic translation, penned by a rabbi named Yonatan, Yonatan ben Uziel. Then there's another Targum, another translation in Aramaic, that is called Targum Onkelus. That was translated by Onkelus, by some guy named Onkelos, who was, and interestingly, he was a, this is wild, he was a descendant 
of one of the, I think one of the opinions about him, he was a, he, he was a, a fellow who was not born Jewish, he converted to Judaism, but he was a descendant, I think, of one of the Roman generals who back in the day was part of the destruction of the temple. That's kind of how far that went. That I think I'm not, I, I hope I'm not getting the stories confused. But anyway, I think he was somehow descended from a Roman who was involved in the destruction of the temple. Either way, this was translated also, Torah was translated also by, by um, uh, um, Uncleus. Take a look at text number two. In your booklets, 86, I'm going to pull it up on the screen. Don't worry, it's coming. Here we go, I'm going to read this, text number two. The Aramaic translation of the Torah was composed by Uncleus, the convert, based on the teachings of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua, both of whom were sages of the Mishnaic era. The Mishnah goes back about 1,800 years to 2,000 years. It's a bit of a time span. There's like, it's not like one generation, it's multiple generations, known as the era of the Mishnah. Pretty much from the destruction of the Second Temple for the first few hundred years, that's known as the Mishnah, the era of the Mishnah. So this is when that happened. Uncleus. Okay, so that's um, the translation of Torah. The Aramaic translation, let's continue back inside. The Aramaic translation of the prophets was composed by Yonatan ben Uziel, based on a tradition going back to Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, two of the great prophets of the Jewish people that lived some centuries before him. So when Yonatan ben Uziel, that's the second translation that we're speaking of here. When Yonatan ben Uziel wrote his translation, listen to this, Israel, like the land of Israel, quaked over an area of 400 parsa by 400 parsa. You know what a parsa is? I don't know exactly, but it's a large area of, uh, of land. So 400 parsa by 400 parsa. A parsa is like a Persian mile, which is something. And a divine voice emerged and said, Who is this who has revealed my secrets to mankind? Clearly, God was a little bit perturbed by the fact that Yonatan ben Uziel translated the Torah into Aramaic, so God kind of shook the earth and said, who is this that revealed my secrets to mankind? I had this locked in Hebrew in a certain style, in a certain text. It had to be, you know, it was encoded, it had to be decoded, and now somebody put the cliff notes, uh, not the cliff notes, put the, you know, it's out there in Aramaic. Yonatan ben Uziel stood up on his feet and said, I am the one who has revealed your secrets to mankind. He did not hide. He stood up and said, it was me. Um, I, it is revealed and known to you that I did this not for my own honor and not for the honor of the house of my father, but rather it was for your honor that I did this so that discord not increase among the Jewish people. Listen to this response. Yonatan ben Uziel says, the reason why I translated scripture into Aramaic was to preserve peace and harmony and unity amongst the Jewish people so that discord not inc increase and emerge. What does that mean? Because essentially, if there was not a, an, a, a cohesive or coherent, or there's a better word, if there was not a unified understanding of what Torah says, then it would split off into just a lot of, um, more than diversity, diversity is a good thing, but it would split off into disunity and discord. There would not be an understanding of what Torah actually says. Therefore, he says, I chose to, or I decided to, or I did translate the Torah to have a, at least a reference point of what Torah is saying. Now, from there, you have we do have multiple commentaries, but at least it all goes back to one kind of one one unified understanding of the Torah. So that's a little bit about Yonatan ben Ozil's translation, which brings me to text number three. Okay, that's a quick intro to text three. Text three is exactly Targum Yonatan. Yonatan ben Ozil, this guy, this rabbi's Aramaic translation on our verse, the opening verse of our Torah portion. And I'm going to read it in the English. So now you're getting an English translation of an Aramaic translation of the Torah. Stay with me for these two lines. Moses the prophet said. By the way, the Torah and the verse doesn't say Moses said. It just says, Ray, behold, or see. It doesn't say Moses the prophet said. But in the translation, he puts it in. You know what we would do today? We would put that in brackets. That the reader shouldn't get concerned that we added words into the original, so we put it in brackets. I've done some translation work. Typically, the style, at least with Jewish stuff, is you put it in brackets so that the reader knows that this is the addition of the editors and not the original. But 
Targum Yonatan, he was a boy, he stood up to God and said, God, I translated your Torah. That's it. Done. So he doesn't mind putting it in like that. Moses the prophet said, let's continue text 3, Behold, I have set this, I, behold, I have this day set in order before you, set in order. So in other words, there's an order that I've set in front of you. And what, it, what have I set in front of you? A blessing, listen to this, birchata v'chilufa, a blessing and its exchange. He translates curse as exchange. That's the big, that's the point of text three. That Targum Yonatan, the Aramaic translator of the Torah, or one of the two, translates klala, which means curse, as chilufa, which is exchange. Now one might say, oh, I know why. I know why he did that. Because he didn't want to say something that nice. Instead of using the word curse, you use the word opposite. So Moses is saying, I place before, the translation is, I place before you a blessing and the opposite, a blessing. So that way you don't have to say curse. Because it's, it's, you know, who wants to say the word curse? That's a nice theory, but that's not what it says. It doesn't say, it doesn't say opposite, it says exchange. You know what exchange means? Is exchange, all right, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm being technical here, but I want to make sure that everyone understands this. Is exchange the same thing as opposite? Do the words exchange and opposite mean the same thing? The answer is no. Are you with me on this? Somebody says, I want, I bought this dress and I want to exchange it. Well, maybe this is a terrible example. I don't know. Um, but I exchange it for a different size. It doesn't mean I want a completely different thing. Um, all right, maybe that's not a great example. But exchange typically means it's similar, right? Opposite means opposite. Exchange is, is, is similar. Exchange means like a replacement. Oh, even better. Let me give it, let, let's get an example. So you bought a, what did you buy? You bought a phone. You bought a phone. And you had the phone for a day and you realized there's a glitch with the phone. The phone didn't work exactly. So you call up the manufacturer, you call up the store, whatever, and you say, I bought this phone and it doesn't work. They said, all right, we'll exchange it. What are they going to give you? The opposite phone? No, they'll give you a new version of the phone. So it says, so, so Targum Yonatan says, you know what the translation of curse is? Exchange. Exchange? How's it exchange? It's the opposite. It's not the exchange of good. So I, God, Moses says, I'm giving you, I'm putting before you an order, a blessing and it's exchange. That's a weird phrase. Blessing and curse is blessing and exchange? Seems like he got the translation wrong. This is our fourth question. So question, to recap, question number one, why is there evil, curse, challenge, etc. in God's world? Number two, what are we seeing? What are we supposed to see? Question three, how is this a gift? I'm giving to you, I'm giving a gift of a curse. How is a curse a gift? And number four, how is the curse an exchange of the blessing? It seems to be the opposite of the blessing, not its exchange. All right, well, you could probably see where we're going with this. But, or maybe you can, maybe you can't, I don't know. Um, but to answer the question, we're going to first take a bit of a journey into Jewish philosophical teachings on the core question of why is there evil or challenge or pain or suffering or darkness in God's world? Why the challenge? Why the negativity? Many answers have been given. Much, much ink has been spilled on this topic. One answer has it that we don't always know what a blessing is and what a curse is. That's one answer. One answer says that, you know, sometimes what we think is a curse turns out to be a blessing, right? I mean, how often has it happened in our lives that something that we would have defined in the moment as being something terrible, something really not good, eventually worked out to be like, oh, hey, that actually, not only was it meant to happen, but it actually was uh, brought about a blessing on some level. What's a famous story about this? Famous story is with Rabbi Akiva. And we're going to quote it now. Who knows the story with Rabbi Kiva and the donkey and the rooster and the candle? You guys know this story? Yeah? All right. It's, it's an oldie but a goodie. But we'll, show, we'll, we'll do it again because, you know, it's a, it's a classic. We've got to keep it in the classics. This is text, nope, not four. This is going to be text number five from the Talmud, page 89. Here we go. It was taught in a bright in the name of Rabbi Akiva. One must always accustom oneself to say everything that God does he does for the best. That was Rabbi Akiva's mantra. Everything that God does, he does for the best. Like 
This incident, says the Talmud, when Rabbi Akiva was walking along the road and came to a certain city. He inquired about lodging, and they did not give him any. You know, he went door to door in the city, and everyone said, nope, you can't stay here, there's no room. So what did he say? He said, everything that God does, he does for the best. He went and slept in a field, and he had with him a rooster, a donkey, and a candle. A gust of wind came and extinguished the candle. A cat came and ate the rooster. And a lion came and ate the donkey. Everything that he had was gone. That's like one day you check your Bitcoin and you realize the whole thing crashed. right? It's like, oh my God, everything is gone. This is terrible. That's the definition of, 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 uh, of something bad happening. His candle is gone. He's sleeping outside. He has no place to stay. His candle is gone. He can't study. His rooster is gone. He can't wake up in the morning. No alarm clock. And his donkey is gone. He has no method of transportation. That's like, you know, okay, forget Bitcoin. That's like some, you're tr someone's traveling and their wallet gets stolen or their bag gets stolen that had their laptop, I mean, God forbid, right? Laptop and passport and money, right? No big deal. Big deal. It's annoying, right? This is a problem. So, but what does he say? Everything that God does, he does for the best. That night, what happened? So he went to sleep in the dark forest by himself. That night, an army came and took the city into captivity. <laughs> that night, the whole city was, uh, was arrested. He said to them, he said to the rabbis, not to the people because they were taken into captivity. He said to them, didn't I tell you? Everything that God does, he does for the best. In other words, Rabbi Akiva believed with, with pure faith that even the challenges in his life had some sort of blessing, maybe blessing in disguise. You know what we call this in English? Every cloud has a silver lining. That's what we call it, silver lining. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we see it immediately, sometimes, most of the times we don't see it. Sometimes, eventually, later down the line, we see it. Sometimes we never see it. But this is an articulation of faith. This is a matter of faith that we might believe, or we should believe, or we, we, we could believe, perhaps, that everything that God does is for the good, which means that um, referencing our, our original question, why is it that God gives us challenge? Why is it that God gives us hardship? Why does God place the opposite of blessing in this world? So one response is, who says it's a curse? Oh, because it looks bad? All right, well, to Rabbi Akiva, this looked bad in the moment. Well, it didn't look bad in the moment to him because he was on a high level, but you know, oftentimes things look bad, but eventually they're for the good. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that satisfying fully? Can we imagine scenarios where things don't work out for the best? Sure. Yes? You with me on that? Okay. Fine. Which takes us to our next perspective. And this is a powerful perspective. This is going to be, from tonight's class, probably the most difficult to process. Before, we, before I get into this, I'm, going to, I'm just telling you, giving you the, 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 the playbook over here. I'm going to present three perspectives on pain and evil and challenge and darkness and suffering, etc. Three perspectives drawn from, from various Jewish sources. Um, we're going to not stick with, but we're going to focus on the third and develop that and, and draw lessons from that. And, and that's the one that we're going to walk away with. But there's two others that I want to present, one of which I just presented. So one perspective on why bad things happen is they were bad maybe in the moment, but they were necessary for something good to happen. Like Rabbi Akiva with this, ha had his candle, maybe I should explain the story. Had his candle been lit, the army would have seen him. Right. Had his donkey been alive, it would have been frightened and made noise. Had his rooster been alive, it would have made noise and would have given away his position. The fact that he had no light and there was no donkey and no rooster and he was the only one who went to sleep Apparently, like a log, like he didn't wake up when the city next door was plundered, was, uh, was ransacked, was, uh, was pogromed, or whatever it is. I mean, the fact that, that that happened was because he had nothing drawing attention to him. So it turns out that the precise thing that could have been construed by him as misfortune was a blessing. And that's how he lived his life, that everything he believed, everything that God does is for the good. Uh, whether I'll see it today or I'll see it tomorrow, maybe I'll never see it, but I, this is my choice to believe that everything God does is for the good. Okay, it's a very high level. It's a very high level of, of, of belief and faith and trust, but this was Rabbi Akiva. So that's one perspective. I want to give you a second perspective. 
The second perspective is that, and this is, oh, of the three, this is the most difficult. Second perspective is that the curse, the negative, actually emanates from a higher source within the spiritual realms. Here's, here's, the, here's the, the short version of this. It's a very difficult concept, but here's the short version. Everything ultimately emanates from, from the highest of sources. But that which is processed, that which is, we call it symptom, right? That which, the, when the light is contracted and cut down and down and down and lower, lower, lower. So when the light is contracted, so it can fit into the recipient and it fits according to the, to the understanding of the recipient, that is what settles well with the recipient. And that's what we call an obvious blessing. That which is pure divine light, uncut, is too harsh for us to understand and we, we interpret it as a curse. This is a very difficult, again, I'm going to say this for the third time, this is a very difficult perspective to really wrap our heads around. I'll give you an example. If we, you know, there's nothing objective about this question, but I'm going to try to ask it objectively or try to present it as an objective question. Which is better, right? A lollipop or caviar? This is with the disclaimer that I don't think I've ever had caviar, but whatever. But which is, again, theoretically, which is better, a lollipop or caviar? You know what? Which, it huh, depends. Yes, yeah, good, good. That's the real answer. Um, but let's ask the question, which is more expensive? A lollipop or caviar? I think that's, that's, a, that's a no-brainer, right? Caviar. person could say, oh, now, you give a child, yeah? You give a child uh, some caviar. What are they going to say? Ew. Ooh. You give them, like, dry wine that's, like, you know, super, super, the most expensive wine. Gross. You give them, uh, you know, anything that tastes sophisticated. What's the child going to say? A young child? And say, ugh, you hate me. Why are you giving me this? What does a young child want? Something sweet and easy. Why? And so this is what I'm trying to explain. And again, these are the spiritually, it's a very subtle topic. So I'm going to do my best. Because the sweet thing is so, it's reduced to a very simple, a very, I don't know, very basic taste. I'm not making fun of, uh, of lollipops, don't worry. I'm just saying elemental. it's like elemental. elemental. Good, you're perfect. Elemental, it's very basic. It's very basic. And it's something that everyone can pretty much understand and appreciate. In other words, it had a lot of symptom. It's, it's, it's brought down to where it's, it's accessible to everybody, even a little kid that doesn't know what's good, what's not good, immediately it tastes good. You don't have to teach anyone that sweet is good. It's, it's obviously good. But something more sophisticated that comes from a, um, stay with me, a higher level of food, you know, higher level food, more expensive, more sophisticated, right? The higher it is, the more you have to mature to appreciate it, and the more the young child will say, ach, this is gross, this is disgusting, take it away. So we're the young child in the analogy, this is an analogy, in the analog, we're the young child, which means that we have a very limited framework of understanding and appreciation and etc. And so the things that come down from on high that we can recognize, oh yeah, that feels good. Like single malt scotch, exactly, right, yes. Um, so the things that come down on our level, like, oh yeah, that feels good, that's a blessing. That means that that thing was cut down so far, was so reduced, that light was so reduced that even you and I, with this really limited ability to understand in this world, even we get that it's good. But that means that it's very reduced. Whereas the things that we encounter, and we're like, what is that? That is so strange, and that's so uncomfortable, and that feels so not good. 
according to Kabbalah, again, super deep, according to Kabbalah, it's because the reason why it feels, why, why, why it doesn't feel comfortable is because it's a pure divine light from another from a higher reality that is incompatible to ours. So it feels uncomfortable. Does that sort of make sense? So which means that the things that we think of as blessings are actually lower in origin than the things that we consider challenges, difficulties, pains, etc. But all are coming from God. I hope that makes sense. So the blessing and the curse. So what does it mean that God gives both the blessing and the curse? Because the blessing is given from God's lower dimension. And the curse, paradoxically, or maybe not so paradoxically, is given from this higher, pure level. I'm going to share some text with you so we can see this inside. Again, it's... Okay, take a look at text number 6. This is page 90. This is from the Alter Rebbe in Tanya. This is one of the most... Again, it's, uh, it stretches the mind and, and the faith and everything, but that's why we're here, right? If it's easy... Then it's like lollipops. We're here for the, uh, for the caviar at Torah Studies. Text number six. Everyone knows. You see, I just did some meta, meta stuff over there. Everyone knows the statement of our rabbis. This is from the Talmud. Just as one should bless God for the good, so he should bless him for the bad. The Talmud explains that this means that we should greet such tidings with the same joy as we would greet tidings that were obviously good. In other words, we should, we should welcome, not welcome, but we should... Embrace negative news with the same joy. I know this sounds super weird, but with the same recognition that this comes from God, etc., as the good news. Because why this too is for the good. It is only that it is not revealed good, visible to the human eye. And why is that? Here's the clincher. Here's the, the, the last line here. That is because it originates from the hidden world, which is higher than the revealed world. So the things that come from the revealed world, which is the lower dimension of spirituality, that's revealed blessing, and it feels good. So that's like the lower level good. But the higher level good, which comes from the hidden world, is so higher level that when it hits our world, it crashes. And it doesn't feel good, and it doesn't feel comfortable. The problem with this is, we have now two perspectives. One perspective is the bad might lead to something good or it will lead to something good. The second perspective is the bad is higher level good. All right. The problem with all of these is that it's real. It's, it's in, in, in theory, it's great. But when, it, when negative stuff hits, you know, all of the philosophy kind of goes out the window, which brings me to, I don't know, one of the most, I mean, I don't even know what to say about this. It's like so powerful. It's a poem from a fellow that I know, mom from Pittsburgh. Remember Josh November? Josh November? Yeah, he's a he's a uh, he's a poet. Yes, Yosh he's a poet. Yeah, Yehoshua. Yeah, Yehoshua November. I don't know if he was in my class or one of uh, around my age. Text number eight. Incredible. We don't usually do this in Torah studies. We don't usually do, it's not usually Torah and poetry, to, I can't even say it, Torah and poetry, poetry, or whatever. But tonight we do this for the simple reason that there's, this poem brings out, he's, okay, let me just tell you something about Yeshua November. He is a very, very smart man. He is well-learned, and he is Chabad guy, and he's an incredible poet, and he takes some of the deepest concepts and makes them real, and makes them raw, and I hope you appreciate this poem. I'm going to give a little commentary on it, but I hope it hits, not the head, but it hits the heart. Okay, and he talks about, in this poem, the, the, the challenge of knowing that, yes, everything is for the good, or yes, it's from a higher place of good, but then the, 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 realist, the feeling of, but this is not good. I'm struggling with this because I don't feel that it's good. I know that theoretically it's good, but it's, I don't feel it. Okay, here we go. If I wear an ice suit, I can fly beneath the sunset and not burn my sunset from the back of the van as we drove over the bridge beneath the pink sky. And if I wear an ice suit, I thought, perhaps I will finish my days without roasting in the oven of what one human does to another or the furnace of what God does to man. Once in Shul, I sat across from a rabbi who spoke of his suffering. He said, I don't have feet to stand on to complain, but I remember standing in a room 30 years ago 
the Rebbe raising his voice to call God to task. A week earlier at the ritual bath, the rabbi realized he had forgotten his white Sabbath shirt. In the sanctuary, I watched him stand up to pray the silent prayer in his undershirt and long black coat. What role do these moments of minor embarrassment play in a life of greater miseries? Could the rabbi concentrate on his prayers? And if so, what did he ask God for at that moment? If I had worn a cage of ice around my heart, it would, have not, it would not have cracked as I stood in the cheder's narrow hallway and heard the principal's matter-of-fact voice say, we cannot help your eldest daughter. She should go to another school. If I wear a band of silence around my head, I will hear nothing, which is what my youngest daughter hears. I would like to rise up and lodge a complaint before God, but each morning I wake late for prayers and rush to catch up with the other worshipers. Once my wife turned to me and asked, do you think this happened because God wanted to show us what innocence looks like? Isn't our youngest daughter happier than the others? Then she turned her face back to her closet and cried into her glasses. Two worlds exist. The higher hidden one and our earthly realm. Everything that occurs in this life flows down from the hidden world. This is getting to the point that we spoke about before. That which appears good descends through an infinite series of contractions until it fits within the finite vessels of this world. That which appears tragic slides down unmitigated from the hidden realm, a higher unlimited good this world cannot hold. So the mystics explain suffering. If all comes from above, from where no evil descends, is this something one tells another who is suffering? I'm sorry. So the mystics explain suffering. If all comes from above, from where no evil descends. Is this something one tells another who is suffering? This is something one does not speak, but tries to believe with all his being when life no longer seems possible. When I was younger, I believed that the mystical teachings could erase sorrow. The mystical teachings do not erase sorrow. They say, here is your life. What will you do with it? Um, I guess I don't usually do poetry because maybe it's, uh, it's more emotional than, uh, than, uh, than, than reading a Rashi. But I'll tell you this. Um, what he says is that we could have all the answers in the world, but when we experience sorrow, the philosophy goes out the window, and there we are, in that space of pain, in that space of challenge. So we have two, two perspectives on pain, on challenge, on sorrow, on darkness, on the curses of life. One perspective says, hold out. This too is for the good, like Rabbi Akiva and the donkey and the rooster and the candle. And another perspective says, the evil, the curses, the challenge, the hardship, the sorrow, the pain, the loss, all of that comes from a higher dimension, a dimension that's so high that when it comes down, it's painful because we can't, we don't recognize it. We can't understand it. We can't process it. It's too high to process, so it feels uncomfortable. But really, it's the greatest blessing. And our faith tells us this, and our tradition tells us this, and, we, and we, we work with it. But I want to share with you a third perspective tonight, because I told you we would have three perspectives. And I also told you we'd end with the third, and hopefully walk away with some, with some uh, life messages. And so the third perspective is that when God says, when Moses says, essentially, that God gives us the blessing and the curse, what that means is that God gives us the reality of both good things and not so good things. The reward for goodness and also sometimes we are rewarded in the opposite way for the good things that we do. Sometimes we do good things and it works out and sometimes we do good things and it doesn't work out. And the question is, so why do bad things happen to good people? 
And the answer, as Marnin said at the beginning of the class, one of the answers is because if good things always happened when people did good and bad things always happened when people did bad, you know what would happen? There would be no free choice. That's what he said, right? If good always begot good and evil always begot evil, if it was a button that you pressed, the good button, and all the, all the, the blessings come, and you hit the other button, and all the bad things come. So who would ever press that button? There wouldn't be free choice. And if there wouldn't be free choice, so what that would do is that would take away the experience of choosing the good. Because what benefit is, not benefit, but what challenge is there, what experience is there in choosing good if there's no opposite choice? And how good is the good if it wasn't born of the efforts that we put in? How good is that good really? So if, if the only choice is good and if the negative is not a choice, then what we call that is a free lunch. It's God saying, all right, hit this button and that's it. And you'd be an angel and not a human being. But it's also vis-a-vis -vis the reward itself. Think about the reward. If um, somebody tells you, you know, you have to figure out a puzzle and then you get rewarded. Or you have to just press a button. So yeah, pressing the button is easier. But at the end of the day, you press a button and out comes the cash. It would feel a little cheap. It would feel cheap because it was too easy. So God, and this is one of the things that the Rebbe develops in his talks over the years, this idea that, that Hashem, that God gives us the challenge and gives us free choice and give, makes it complicated and gives us literal challenges in our lives to make it not easy to choose good. Precisely so that when we do choose good, not only is it significant and meaningful, but it's also meaningful for us because what it does for us is it allows us to earn our rewards so we're not just getting a spiritual free lunch. I hope this is making sense. I want to share with you another text of the Rebbe which expresses this beautifully. This is text number 10. I'm going to share my screen with you. Okay. Here's what the Rebbe says. Text number 10, page 97. Why does it have to be this way? Why must the person put in work to receive blessing? And you know what work means? I'm just going to comment here for a moment. Work means not only that it's hard to do a mitzvah, because it takes work. Of course, but it's also hard to do a mitzvah because the other option also looks attractive. The, the negative option. And because sometimes when we do a mitzvah, it doesn't work out. A, a, a bigger challenge happens. We did... We, God, we know what God wants, so we do it. And then what? It got worse. Great. Now you want me to do it again? How, how crazy do you think I am? I should do it again? That's the effort that we're talking about. It's not just, oh, you have to wake up early and go to shul. Or you have to take the five minutes and wrap your tefillin around your arm. That's the work. It's not the work. That's also the work, but that's not the work. The work is getting over, getting past this this block of how it, why should I do it? Yeah, Shabbos. Why Shabbos? If I go to work, I'll make, if, I, if I work on Saturday, I'll make more money. That's, that's the work. That's the challenge. The challenge is not that, you know, it's hard to go to shul and eat chalant and, 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 and fabreng. That's not the hard part. The hard part is when you say, think to yourself, you know what, if I worked another day, I'll make another, another day's worth of salary. That's the, that's the work. That's the work. Because you see someone else, they work on that day, and they get money. And I'm not working, and I'm losing money. That's the work. So why is it like this? Why didn't God make it easy? Easy to do the right thing. Easy to do a mitzvah. And it's terrible to do the wrong thing. Yeah, the Saturday work is terrible. It's ridiculous. It loses money all the time. Why didn't God make it like that? Could, let's continue inside. Could God not have given everything entirely on his, of his own accord? Considering the fact that it's God's nature to be kind, if God really intended to be kind to his creation, we should be able to receive everything with no effort at all. Here's the explanation. What is true blessing? When the person earns it, and it's not just a freebie. When, and by the way, the Rebbe didn't say the word freebie. This is a translation that is, uh, okay. When one receives for nothing, in other words, one gets just, Free, it's called the bread of shame. It's, the bread of shame is not an English phrase. It's from, 
from the Talmud or whatever, some, some Jewish teachings. Inasmuch as God is indeed the paragon of kindness, He wished to give pe the people, you and I, real goodness. And so it was determined that we receive blessing only when we work for it. And so what God is telling us in the opening verse of this Torah portion, we have all the answers to all the questions. Re'eh. God says, see. You have to see beneath the surface. Because the surface is, it's difficult, and life is difficult, and life is painful, and we, and we don't understand. And we have philosophies and theories, and it's for the good, and ultimately it's going to work out. And, you know, maybe this happened because there was going to be, I would have been in that city, and then I would have gotten plundered, and I would have been there. Or maybe somehow it's from a higher realm, and it's really good, but I don't see it. But you can't see that. Always. Or ever. But you know what you can see? You can see that staying the course, keeping the faith, doing the right thing, even when we could fall apart. We, could, we can see that that takes hard work. And we can see also that the things that are the product of hard work, those things ultimately are the most satisfying. The things that we accomplish through, difficult, through difficulty, through hard work, through effort, through perseverance and grit and determination and resilience, that's what we've earned, and that's special. So God says, or Moses says, Re'eh, see. See why this is here, why there is the blessing and the curse. I want you to see it. I want you to appreciate the, the experience of the effort that we put in, the, the benefit of the effort that we put in because of the challenge. This also explains why it's a gift. It's a gift because it's not giving us a handout. It's not making it easy. As Marnin said before also, we're not angels. And that's a gift. It's the gift of humanity. It's a gift. No sein, no tain. It's a matana. It's a gift. And finally, Targum Yonatan, Benozil. The great Yonatan Benozil translated bracha uklala, blessing and curse, as blessing and its exchange. Why its exchange? Not the opposite. The exchange. Exchange means it's the same thing. Because the truest blessing is the one that comes from the perseverance working with and against and through challenge, through the curse. We don't ask for it. We don't want it. We don't like it. But when we do the hard work, when we stay the course, when we keep the faith, when we push hard, even when it feels impossible, the light that's born of that experience is the greatest light. And it's the light that we've earned. Objectively, it's the greatest, and it's the greatest to us because we did it, even when it seemed difficult. So at the end of the day, God gives us blessings in different forms, some more painful than others. As uh, Yeshua November says at the end, that last line, he says, when I was younger, I believed, the mystical that I believed the mystical teachings could erase sorrow. The mystical teachings do not erase sorrow. They say, here is your life. What will you do with it? That's free choice. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I appreciate you being here and for being on this, on this journey with me. All right. Any questions or comments? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure. Questions, comments? Mark, you changed your background. <laughs> yeah, back in my house. Yeah. I see that. When I get my house, I dropped I drop the signals. I couldn't get back. No, back. no worries. No worries. You're, uh, you're good. All right. It's good to see you. All right. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure, pleasure. All right. Uh, quick announcement before everyone, everyone, uh, everyone leaves. Um, all right, announcement number one is this Sunday. Wow. Talk about an emotional uh, um, experience. This Sunday we have an absolutely gorgeous film. It's uh, an independent Israeli film. It actually was nominated for seven, I believe, Israeli Academy Awards. Gorgeous film. It's called Shoelaces. It's about the story of a father and his special needs son. And how, it's, I'm not going to give away the plot, but it's about a dad and his son. Um, and it's extremely touching. 
and the director of the film, again, Israeli film, Israeli director, is has a neat, has a special needs son. It's it's really a beautiful. You don't see films like this. It's really beautiful, and it's also funny. There's comedy. There's there's it's family. It's there's drama. There's emotion and there's comedy. It's real. So join me this Sunday at Chabad on the Beltline outdoors. I haven't checked the weather, but I'm hoping we're good. With the, anybody check the weather for Sunday? If it's not, yeah, well, there's always a plan B, but the plan is. And you know what, honestly, I mean, what do they know about Sunday and Wednesday, right? It's a guess. I could flip a coin now and also be very, very confident, essentially. So, I mean, you know, sometimes you know, but, you know, whatever. It's, I'm sure it's good. it's good right now? So far. So far. All right, good. Well, in that case, they for sure know what they're talking about. Full sun, done. All right, so then for sure the, then for sure the weather is always correct, so we're good. 8 p.m., join me. If the movie itself doesn't, you know, you're not sure, then join us for the Chinese food. You heard me right. You don't have to wait to December 25th to have kosher Chinese. Have kosher Chinese right with us. This is an all-you-can-eat buffet. We have um, general chow chicken. We have sesame beef. We have vegetable lo mein. We have egg rolls. We have rice. We have Chinese noodles. The whole, the whole shebang. So join us and, and others and other foods and snacks and popcorn and drinks and beverages. So join us Sunday, 8 p.m. for the film experience. You're going to love it. The way it works, by the way, is 8 p.m. we start with the food, and then when the sun sets, we show the movie. It's usually about a half an hour or so later or less. Okay, next announcement is next Monday night. So I'm filling up your week in case you had an empty week or didn't, but now you can clear your calendars because now I've, I've planned your week for you. That's what we do at IJA. We plan your week. So Sunday night is film. Monday night is going to be our scribe workshop, Jewish scribe workshop. Have you ever written with your feather? Asked the email that I composed today. And if the answer is yes, great, then you're a professional, join us Monday. If the answer is no, well then, what do you mean? You gotta join us Monday and check it out. We're going to have a, an authentic Jewish scribe, an expert Jewish scribe from here in Atlanta, join us to show us how Jewish holy ritual items are made. That means like a Torah and the mezuzah and tefillin, anything that requires special, special, exactly, special scribal writing, the equipment, the methodology, how it works, what it means. You'll have a chance to, if you want to have your mezuzah checked before the holidays, there's a tradition, I should mention, that in this month of El, which, by the way, Sunday is Rosh Chodesh, um, so there's a tradition that in this month, before the high holidays, we have our scrolls checked. Right? So it's good to have the scrolls checked. You pull them at least uh, uh, a few times every seven years. Some people do it every year, this time of year. So if you have a mezuzah that you want to check, make sure it's still kosher, or just check it out in general, bring it, and it will be checked, not necessarily that night, but it'll be checked and then sent back to you. And you will know also if you want to purchase a mezuzah or another you know, ritual item, you'll have the chance to do so Monday night. So that's Monday night starting at, I think, 8 p.m. Local scribe. Local scribe. Yeah. There's a Jewish rapper who goes by the name Describe. D-E-S-C-R-I-B-E. Describe. I don't know why I spelled Describe. That's literally how you spell Describe anyway. I don't know why I said that either. Describe. He's Describe. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like the rap name. All right. Anyway. So, oh, 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 oh. Of course. And then join us for the National Jewish Retreat starting next Wednesday. Tuesday or Wednesday? Tuesday. Tuesday. I mean, you could... Tuesday. Wednesday. Oh, so, oh, good. We got your Monday planned. Sorry, we got your Sunday planned, your Monday planned. And starting from Tuesday. We have a bus. We have a bus, right? Well, maybe, maybe not yet. But Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Shabbat, Sunday. Six days of retreat. This is the national... I'm going to call it international because people fly from around the world. This is the national... International Jewish Retreat, put on by JLI. Incredible inspiration, top-of-the-line speakers and entertainment, world-class food. You don't want to miss this. Jo if you want to join me for my workshops and for a concert and for incredible food, the day that I'm recommending, if you have one day to join, I would recommend Thursday, you know, because we can hang out. I'll be there. So join me Thursday in person at Stone Mountain, Hi, don't worry, security will be there. Some people, right? Secure, Stone Mountain, Thursday. You can join from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
or from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., or from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. If that didn't make sense, you could join for a half days or full day program. Jretreat.com. J, the letter J, R-E-T-R-E-A-T. Jretreat. Treat yourself to the Jre. It doesn't make any sense. Jretreat.com. You click on reserve or something, and you will see there's an option to choose your day, choose your time. You don't have to choose a room because you're, if, well, if you're local, you just come in and, and go home for the night. But here's the cool thing. Type in the three-letter code, I-J-A, which stands for In-Town Jewish Academy, I-J-A, to get 100 bucks off of your reservation because, you know, we're cool like that. All right, that's it. That's all the news for the print. Oh, what am I speaking about? I'm speaking about Robinhood, cryptocurrency, and NFTs. That's one talk. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you probably don't want to be there. But it's also market manipulation and insider trading, so that's one topic. The second topic is going to be urban, no, is going to be, um, oh, come on, what's it called? One second, just give me a moment here. Privacy, privacy. No, yeah, but I'm saying the title, what's my title? My title is? Ethics. Ethics. Mm, uh, I got something else in there. <laughs> here, here, hold on, I'll, I'll tell you my topic. The ethics of voyeurism. Okay, the ethics of voyeurism. So my first uh, one topic is Robinhood cryptocurrency, Robinhood cryptocurrency and NFTs, and the second one is the ethics of voyeurism. All right, if you're intrigued by these topics, and or like good food, and or want to hear top of the line speakers from around the world, and or oh, and Donna's going to be there. Donna, when are you there? Thursday. Yes, I'm actually doing the workshop on Thursday, 11.20, the same time that you're doing your first Don't workshop. tell people. Let them think they have choices. No, I'm kidding. They have choices. You have one in the afternoon, too. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, apples, apples and honey uh, bracelet, red agate gemstones, a beautiful gold pot of honey, and the whole story of it's way more than just dipping the apple in the honey. The whole story of honey in the Torah. I love it. I love it. That sounds so sweet. So join us on Thursday as well as Dina Schusterman. She will be presenting also on Thursday. And top speakers and the most incredible Jewish food this side of the Mississippi. Does, does anyone say that? I don't know. Whatever. Mason-Dixon line, is that a thing? I don't want, I, yeah, I feel like I'm just treading in dangerous territory. I don't know. But, all right, folks, join me next week for all these parties. Um, tomorrow, DBP, Friday, DBP, and that's it. Shavuot to everybody, or Shabbat Shalom. Wednesday, you already start saying Shabbat Shalom. All right, we'll see you all. Take care, everybody. All right. Good night. Bye. Laila Tov. Good night.